Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. It is great to see you today, and uh, it was great to have last weekend off. I also want to give thank you to Braden and Josiah for leading last week in the service, and for Emily and Chris, our two newest staff members. Uh, they, uh, they held down the fort while the rest of us got away for some much-needed time away. Uh, for this new series, Fearless Life, we've chosen First John as the biblical basis for it, with the purpose of encouraging us that we can live life with more confidence, fearless confidence in our faith. But as we go through this series looking at John, we're also going to discover that that fearless confidence that he wants us to have is going to enhance our relationships. It's going to empower a greater level of success in our work, in our life. It's going to increase peace. It's going to decrease anxiety. It's going to increase joy, and it's going to decrease the amount of time we feel stuck feeling down. In fact, John says one of the primary reasons he writes this letter is so that your joy would be complete. Doesn't that sound good? That's a great way, I think, to start the new year, to to focus on that. And what we also loved about 1 John is this, that, that it's really great material for anybody who's still new to the faith or just trying to figure out this faith thing. And it's also as deep as you want to go with it for those of you who've been following Jesus for years. So as I've been getting ready for this series over the past month, I've been pondering this idea of fearless living. So years ago, before cell phones were common use, we were living in Tulsa, and I was in a staff meeting, and I received the most fear-inducing call I've ever received in my entire life. The receptionist interrupted the meeting and said, you need to pick up the phone right now. Wendy is calling with an emergency. And I grabbed the phone in the conference room right there with the 10 or so other staff that were there, and Wendy screams into the phone, her head is bleeding. There's blood everywhere. I can't get the bleeding to stop, and I don't know what to do. Elise was about 16 months old at the time, and Wendy was talking loud enough that there was no need for a speakerphone. Everyone in the room could hear what was going on. And so after just a short moment, one of the staff members walked out of the room, called 911 to get an ambulance on the way, and I told Wendy then that there was an ambulance on the way, and she said, no, cancel it. And then because... There was too much for her hands to do. She just abruptly hung up. Now, our church office at the time was in a 60-story tower, so I ran to the elevator, waited for the elevator, got down. I ran the quarter of a mile out to the parking lot, and I made the 15-minute drive home in just over 10 minutes, sorry, policeman, to find an empty house with a pool of blood on the floor of the bathroom. After an hour or so of calling every urgent care and hospital in the area, I finally located where they actually went, and Elise got several stitches, and we brought her home. Wendy had no idea that head wounds bled that badly. So what Elise had been doing is she'd been on Derek's bed, and she was jumping off. She'd been jumping off all day, but one time she jumped off, and she hit her head on the metal frame, splitting it wide open. We get home from getting her stitches, and within five minutes, what's she doing? She's back on Derek's bed, jumping off again. Isn't that cool? 
uh, yet a little bit kind of insane how kids are in that way, so fearless. They often have this ability to just live fearlessly. So here's a question. What does it look like for each of us, you and I, to live a fearless life? What does that actually mean? So to set up our discussion a little better, allow me to tell you on another one of my favorite memories from Elise's life, but for just a little bit of a different reason. So fast forward 16 months from her stitches, and we've actually moved to Oregon now. We're living in Oregon. We had purchased a house on a hill with a really long downhill driveway all the way downhill to the garage. If you you know couldn't start the car at the top of the hill, you could always get it in the garage because you could coast it there. So our kids, they would go to the top of the hill and uh, have over 100 feet of downhill to enjoy where they could ride their scooters at fairly high rate of speed coming down the driveway. And it was great for us as parents because we didn't need to push them anymore. Remember those little tykes, you know, things where they had little steering wheels and they could, that's what they rode down. One day we were out working in the yard and uh, Wendy and I were. And Elise decided that she was big enough to do the hill without supervision, which was against our rules. And since it was so much fun going down forward, she thought it would be even more fun to go down backward. So before we knew it, she's rocketing down the hill in reverse, smiling as big as she could smile. The only problem is she turned the wheel the same way you would when you were going forward to end up in the safe part of the driveway. Instead, now, since she's going backwards, making her go into the turnaround, which ended in a 10-foot drop off over the edge of the hill. Elise, smiling the entire way until she took air, flies off the end of that turnaround, and Wendy sees it faster than I do, and she's about seven months pregnant with Jared at the time, and she beat me to where she flew off, and she, too, took a flying leap off the hill. Finding Elise only halfway down the drop-off. So you might ask, well, how could you only be halfway down the drop-off? It's because the whole drop-off was filled with blackberry brambles. So Elise lay there face up, snagged about five feet down the hill in a mess of thorns, mostly suspended in air on thorns. I got there and I stepped partially down the drop-off while Wendy quickly and gently got Elise out of the thorns and handed her up to me. And then one of the sweetest moments in all of life happened. Elise gave me a great big hug and she said, Daddy, my hero. As pregnant Wendy, (laughs) bleeding in multiple places from her arms and her legs, is finishing untangling herself from the thorns and climbing out of the blackberry bushes from where she had rescued our daughter. What can I say? A dad and his daughter. Now, 19 years later, it's become a uh, teasing family joke for me to get the hero accolades when someone else has done something and I get some of the credit. It's always, Daddy, my hero. Said with kind of worse sarcasm than that, usually. Does a fearless life look like being a hero? Does it? See, we have images of heroes, don't we, that would say what a fearless life looks like. We get those images from the movies. We get them from history. The images are generally 
tough people, extraordinarily brave, people motivated by honor and glory, usually very strong people mentally and emotionally, people who are not like you and I because they react completely different than you and I would to most threats. And yet, while doing busy work over the holidays, I was watching this fascinating docudrama movie titled Beyond Glory. It's performed in theater style by the actor Stephen Lang. And Lang acts out the people who were biographically interviewed in a book by the same name, all eight of whom were Medal of Honor winners from uh, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. What was so starkly revealing was that seven out of the eight people, they, they were just ordinary people who in a desperate situation in which they thought they were going to die just did the next thing for them and their comrades to survive. As I was listening to these Medal of Honor recipients talking about who they were as people and what they did in that Medal of Honor moment in their life, a second question for me came into stark relief. And that question is this, what is it that can empower us? What is it that can motivate you and I to live a truly fearless life? See, as much as I hate to admit it, fear is still too much a part of my life. As much as I wish it weren't true, as strong as I sometimes think I am, fear undermines so much joy and so much happiness in my life. There was a recent article in the New York Observer claiming that fear is the new normal. It noted that fear influences many of the choices we make, and the problem with that is decisions motivated by fear are flawed, if not dangerous. We will never get to the healthy, fulfilling lives that we want based upon fear-based choices. Here are some of the clues that fear might be encroaching in your life. If Fear tends to see only the downside. See, while nearly every choice has an upside and a downside, are are you the person who tends to identify the worst that could happen? Fear tells us to avoid anything new or unknown, whereas healthy fear only rises up in response to real threats to survival. Too often, fear sounds an alarm whenever we stick our toe outside of our comfort zone even though we know others have done the same thing many times without ever having a problem. Fear prefers that we stay in the familiar, even if that familiar is a painful situation rather than stepping into the unknown. For example, fear often causes us to stay in an abusive relationship or in a dead-end job that God doesn't have planned for us that is not healthy for who we are. Fear often keeps us from making any decision at all. A wise person once says, choose a path or the path will be chosen for you. Fear is the root of some people's, I don't know if somebody made this word up, decidophobia, the fear of making decisions. While most individuals do not freeze in the face of choices, fear keeps many of us second-guessing ourselves, resulting in avoiding decisions whenever we can. And of course, we all know that no decision at all actually becomes a decision. Any procrastinators here? Yeah? Fear has you say yes all too often when you mean no, doesn't it? You don't want to disappoint others. You don't want to experience rejection. 
Uh, When fear is operating, you tend to avoid speaking up and you won't stand up for what you believe. Another way fear shows up, fear may lead to too much. Too much watching TV, too much eating, too much staying excessively busy, etc. All those kinds of things to avoid the down feelings or the fear feelings, we anxious feelings we face. Fear also drives us in our overly controlling natures. If we over-control, we micromanage, it's really fear that's driving that most of the time for us. Fear keeps all of us from the love, the confidence, the peace, the joy we're looking for in life. And that actually was the case with John as well. I think as we wrestle with today primarily the question, what is it that motivates us to live a fearless life? What is it that instills that kind of confidence See, that, that's actually where John is taking us in this letter. And I think it would be good for us to start with a little uh, background on looking at who John is. Because John was this, was this fearful person. He wasn't fearless at the beginning. And John grew because of following Jesus. And in today's message, we will land on the thing that motivated a fearless life for John. Making confidence and joy and peace possible in John's long life. So a little background on John first. John was raised in a small fishing and farming farming village. Some people try to say that John was poor, but that actually was probably not the case. He was probably the definition of middle class, maybe even upper middle class in his upbringing. We see when Jesus calls the disciples in Mark 1, for example, that James and John are brothers and they're sons of Zebedee. And Zebedee, it says, had a fishing business that had hired servants. So in other words... They owned a family business that was large enough to employ all the sons and everyone else of working age in the family and hire outside workers to join them. John came from a successful family business. Yet we also know John and James weren't good enough in school to become, pardon me, the main leaders of the community. So they were successful, but not highly successful. We see later that the religious intellectual elite referred to John and the other disciples as uneducated. And that was actually more of a put down, not a reality. The reality was John was decently educated and and successful in business. He just didn't make it to the Harvard and Stanford level schools of his day for some reason. So Jesus asks James and John to follow him, and they up and leave their family business and follow Jesus. And the four eyewitness accounts of, G- of G- Jesus' life portray John as Jesus' closest, most faithful friend. And yet, we still see fear undermining John's life, and Jesus working with John to help him become more fearless in the way he lives his life. To see this, let's look at two snapshots from John's life. The first snapshot is actually seen in two different scripture passages. The first we're not going to read, but it's in Mark 3.17, where Jesus, it tells us that Jesus gave John and James, his brother, a nickname. Anybody remember it? Sons of Thunder, right? Now, I sleep better with some white noise. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was staying in a noisy hotel and having trouble sleeping, so I downloaded a couple of white noise apps to my phone. 
They give you all sorts of wonderful different sounds, from a babbling brook to a waterfall to noise in the woods to ocean waves to, for all of you city folk who grew up in places like New York City and can't sleep without honking horns, they give you the urban sound of cars, and they also give you the pitter-patter of raindrops. But there is one sound you can't find on a white noise app, and it's thunder. It's because thunder is unsettling, and it's scary. It explodes with loud cracks that shake things. See, John and James are like a double-barrel shotgun of thunder. We see this actually lived out in real life for them in Luke 9, 52 through 55. In this passage, the context is Jesus and his disciples have decided to do something few Jews would do and no one actually wanted to do. They actually decided on their way to Jerusalem to take a shortcut through Samaria. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Centuries earlier, they had all been one nation in Israel, uh, relatives actually, until there was a civil war and they split into two. The Samaritans went out on their own to create their own temple and their own worship of the practices and they adopted worship uh, practices that were heretical and pagan worship practices and they hated each other and Samaritans especially hated pilgrims who were going to Jerusalem to worship. As Jesus and his disciples were traveling, they needed a place to stay and get some food. So Jesus sent some of the disciples ahead to this one town to prepare things for the band of people following Jesus, which likely could have been 100 or more people traveling with Jesus. So the messengers went to the Samaritan village, and they were, the Bible says, not welcomed. Now that's a nice way of saying your kind aren't welcome here, you scum of the earth. We won't give you anything. We don't care if you starve. We don't care if you die of thirst. This is radical socioeconomic, cultural, religious bigotry, racism. So here is James and John's response. When the disciples of James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Lightning and thunder go together, don't they? So James and John have the great idea that the good godly thing to do is to fry them all. Can you imagine this conversation for a moment? Hey, Jesus, I think setting them on fire would be the best thing right now. This is not a very Christian moment or loving moment. And Jesus rebukes them. I can imagine the conversation was a little longer than it's recorded saying, how about we not set them on fire, guys? How about we maybe pray for them? Maybe we evangelize them. Maybe we care for them. And maybe we just go to the next town. But let's not set them on fire, okay? What is it that causes this kind of anger, this kind of bigotry and reaction? I suppose in one sense you could say James and John were fearless in this instance. They, they wanted to right a wrong that was done against them by an enemy. They wanted justice. And they exhibited a lot of bravado, at least in, in their sense of willingness to put action to their words. But is that fearless? Or rather, is it evidence of a life being driven by fear? See, I think much of our anger in life is actually evidence of our lives being driven by fear. Anger, psychologists teach us, is generally a secondary emotion. We are often fearful, anxious, threatened, and it comes out as anger. Fearful that we'll be 
mistreated or have been mistreated, fearful that we won't be able to achieve a goal, fearful that someone is going to stand in the way of something good for us, whether it's success or happiness or recognition or something more tangible like food or shelter or medical help or even stand in the way or damage friendship. Think about the times you're angry. What's motivating that fight, that anger in you? What are you fearful of in that moment? For the second snapshot to get to know John better, let's turn to Mark 10. Uh, We're going to look primarily at verses 35 through 37. The disciples have been with Jesus for almost three years now, and the time of Jesus' death and resurrection is drawing near. And Jesus has been talking a lot about that death and resurrection coming up and about ultimate things in the life of his disciples. And in the midst of that, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So this is a little bit like your kids saying, will you say yes before I tell you what I'm asking? And it's kind of a clear warning. You probably shouldn't say yes. But Jesus plays along. And then Jesus says, so what do you want me to do? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Does this seem a little prideful and pretentious to you? I mean, they're saying, hey, Jesus, we've heard you talking about going back to heaven and we've talked talking about you having a throne there where the entire universe is going to, you know, angels and everything, all the people are going to bow down to you and worship you. And, and, and Jesus, we thought it would be a great idea instead of one throne, maybe maybe three. And, uh, you know, we're not selfish or too, you know, it's okay. You can have the main center one. You can have the middle one. We don't need that. But could you just have two right on either side of you, and could you just share a little bit of that worship with us? I mean, that's it. That's all we're asking, right? What is it that drives you and I to be overly needful of affirmation, of position, and of recognition? A while back, I had the privilege of having a conversation with a a, a fairly successful business person who God has been doing a lot in their life through the ministry of Quest for a number of years. And one of the things they said to me was how God had been addressing the fear that drove them, leading them to be motivated in a wholly different, radically freeing way. See, prior to this, they they had been caught up in the leadership teaching and business politics of self-promotion, even at the cost of times of other people around you. And they just kind of say, it's it's just business. It's the way business works. That That's the way things work in my company. If you don't look out for number one, you don't get promoted. Where are you being driven by fear in your self-promotion and your leadership practices or rather than living a fearless life? Where do you find yourself saying that that's just business and that's just the success, the cost of success in relationships, that's the price of success, even though you may not always feel right about how things are going. See, the fruit of change in this person's life was God confronted the fear and drew them to a different way of living, a, a leading and doing business. Uh, they were motivated by what will land on in just a moment today and as the primary fearless living way of being motivated. The, the, the result of that change for them in motivation was this person's life had a huge decrease in anxiety and stress, even though the job was the same. The stress was the same, as demanding as ever. And the result was tremendously increased levels of confident peace and joy. 
See, we get the impression from looking at the life of John that he was a fearful person. He was angry, impatient, unloving, saying things that are unkind, unloving at times, needing lots of affirmation in order, in order to feel important. And, and within that, John is sometimes a little intimidating, a little proud, a little self-seeking. And yet Jesus chose that John and to not only follow him, but he chose that John to be his best friend. And Jesus starts there with all of us. See, the reason the Bible includes the story of John is because John, like you and I, was driven by fear, even though he, like most of us, a lot of times aren't willing to really admit it or see it at first. And God changed him and led him to be known as a man who was fearless. And that through a life where he was imprisoned and tortured and exiled to the most inhospitable place, the island of Patmos, for many years. And every one of his close friends were persecuted, many of them tortured and martyred for their faith, including his brother James, who was the first of the 12 disciples to be killed for his faith. And yet, and yet, he learned to live fearless with a joy in the midst of all that that was complete and full. And he writes in 1 John over a half a century later, now as an old man in his 80s or 90s, the only original disciple of Jesus still alive, near the end of his letter, he pens his ultimate purpose for writing and what motivates a truly good, joy-filled, meaningful, fearless life. In John 4, he writes this. He says, God is love. Now, John isn't saying God is loving He's saying God defines love because God is love. The only way you and I can ever even know how to define what true love is is by allowing God to define it for us. God is love. He goes on, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete. This complete theme is a theme all throughout 1 John of how love and joy and peace and confidence is made complete and full in you and me. Isn't that something we really want, the sureness of that completeness? Not, not falling short, but fully realizing all the good things we long for. So John is about to give us this nugget, the most important statement, the purpose in all that he is writing. He goes on and says, this is, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Love is made complete when you and I are like Jesus. And what motivates us to grow to become that, here it is. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. It's perfect, the perfect, complete experience of love that drives out fear. It's love that gets rid of our fear, that leads us to living a fearless life. See, God wants you to live a fearless life. And it isn't bravado. It isn't being macho. It isn't seeking glory. It isn't even your discipline and your education. 
It isn't bucking it up and acting bravely even when you don't feel like it to lead, that'll lead you to that kind of life. It isn't confessing the right things and pumping yourself up. It isn't even your moral rectitude. Living a fearless life, having your joy in life become complete is all about your ability to receive and live in the love God has for you. Any fear you have is a sign, it's an invitation that there is more love of God for you to experience and for you to know. The only way you overcome your fear is to receive the love of God more fully and understand more deeply how secure, how strong, how beautiful, how complete the love of God is to you and for you. See, this is what John is writing about. And this change is even what we see already having a tremendous impact on John. Just three years of being with Jesus, John, this young man in his 20s with a nickname, Son of Thunder, driven by fear and insecurity, Jesus' love had so transformed his life in just three years that when Jesus is betrayed and tortured and crucified, John was the only disciple to fearlessly stick with Jesus through the whole process. The gospel account talks about when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus that all the disciples scattered, but then we immediately see Jesus at the high priest's home with the Jewish ruling council, and there's John with him. Peter also comes, but do you remember how that turned out? When people recognized Peter as one of Jesus' disciples, Peter denied Jesus three times, but not John. John was there in public recognized. And when we see Jesus at the cross, the only disciple there within talking distance of Jesus, along with Jesus' mother Mary, is John. Why? John is already living a more fearless, confident life in the most horrific of all moments in human history. A fearless confidence, all because he knows how much God loves him. See, in chapter 5 in John's closing remarks to this letter that we're going to be looking at through this series, we, the, the, this, this letter was read to all the Christian churches all over the Roman Empire. John summarizes how he wants you and I as followers of Jesus to live confidently and fearlessly. Now, I'm not going to read all those closing remarks from the text today. You can read them on your own later, and I encourage you to do so. Allow me to simply summarize them. In verse 13, he says, I want you to know, I want you to be confident that you have eternal life. Not just confident in this life, not, but a confidence in life after death. And what does that mean? It means that we'll have confidence that one day everything will be set right. That all of suffering, all the heartache, all the frustration of this life will one day be resolved for you and everyone in eternal life with God. In verse 14, he says, I want you to have confidence in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. And what does that say to us? It says to us that you and I can grow to be confident in knowing God's voice and knowing God's will for our lives so that we can know God hears us and we can know he's going to answer. When we pray, that kind of confidence. 
In verse 16, he says, so that we can be confident in our relationships with others. Even when sin is damaging those relationships and there's conflict, we can confidently know how to pray and we can know how to love and how to relate and how to press into those relationships, even in the midst of conflict, rather than being fearful of it in ways that express God's love and gives the best chance possible for healing in those relationships and restoration and hope and joy to be realized. And then he says, we can be confident even in the facing our own struggle with sin and evil in the world. Confident that God has overcome the world and that God will bring freedom to you and I, that you and I don't have to be stuck in the sinful things that we continue to get stuck in over and over again that we wish we could get past, that we can live life fearless, confident because we are confident in God's love and his power for us. I don't know about you, but I want that kind of confidence in all areas for me, and I want it for you as well. To grow in our confidence in God's love is, I think, the most worthy goal we could have for this coming year. Where do you need to receive more of God's love so that fear becomes less in your life and in your relationships? Go ahead and come on up, worship team. See, we can be confident in God's love because he held nothing back. He didn't wait for us to respond. He didn't wait for us to be worthy. He loved us first. And he loved us with a full, perfect, complete measure of love with his very life. At the first the first active step I want to invite all of us to in, in responding to this and, and growing in confidence is for us today to celebrate communion as we close our service today. As we receive communion, the bread, the bread reminds us that God loved us so much that he humbled himself and he became a human in Jesus because he wanted to be so tangible, so clear, so close to be an example to us of what love really means that we could see and understand who God is. And in that, he took upon his body the punishment we deserve so that justice could be done and also mercy could be given. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. Jesus gave his very lifeblood to the last ounce, to death itself, holding nothing back to forgive us and save us from the just consequences of our sin and from death itself, giving us solid hope that there is a perfect good life, a fully restored life for all of us eternally if we choose to receive Jesus for who he is and receive his forgiveness and receive his love. So here at the Vineyard, the way, we, the way we celebrate communion is it's open to all who confess Jesus as their Lord and Master. And, and I also want to invite those of you who are uncertain about Jesus yet to consider receiving communion as well. And here's what I want you to do. If you are still seeking God and you're not sure about Jesus yet, maybe just come and take communion and, and say this kind of a prayer as you do. Just say, God, if you're really real, if you really are Jesus, then I want to know and receive your forgiveness and I want to know you and I want to follow you as the leader of my life. So 
come on as we continue to worship and receive these tangible symbols of God's love. Those who are serving, could you please come? Because this is the perfect love that casts out all fear. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come. I know you're already here, but I pray that you would come in an even more tangible way in this moment. Lord, for those of us who are convinced and followers of you, would you deepen our sense of your love as we receive communion and worship? And Lord, for those here who are still uncertain, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come even right now and just rest all around them. Let your presence, your love, your invitation to them, your desire to know them be sensed and known in this moment. And Lord, would you receive our worship in Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you this week to go home and read 1 John. I want you to just say, God, would you, would you show me the areas that I'm walking in fear where you want me to know how much you love me so that I can be free of that? And maybe he's going to show you some of your friends who are walking in fear, and, the, and maybe he's going to say, I want you to invite them because I want you to be a part of bringing my love to them. I want you to be a part of bringing freedom to them just by your invitation. So pray about that. Go home, invite your friends. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.